Welcome to the Oakcrest podcast channel. Oakcrest School in Vienna, Virginia challenges girls in grades 6 to 12 to develop their intellect, character, faith, and leadership potential to thrive in college and throughout their lives. On today's podcast, Dr. Evelyn Burge Fitz, Professor Emerita of French Literature, Thought, and Culture at NYU, takes listeners on an exciting journey through seven of her favorite works of medieval literature. She explores some of the fascinating history and themes in these great and appealing Catholic works from the Middle Ages. So welcome to the sixth annual O'Donovan Humanities Lecture. Before I introduce our speaker tonight, I just wanna provide some background for this evening's lecture. Named to honor Ocrest's first headmistress, Miss Pat O'Donovan, we have two aims with the annual lecture, to celebrate the humanities and to honor great teachers. The Humanities Lecture was born eight years ago from a desire to offer our parents and friends an evening of enjoyable intellectual and cultural enrichment. We wanted it to be like one of the classes in high school or college that you come out of and keep talking about long after it's over. In searching for a great teacher to honor from the history of Ocrest, Pat O'Donovan came to mind immediately because her classes were known to be exemplary, lively, and inspiring. Pat was the first head of school at Ocrest from the school's opening in 1976 in a house in Washington, D.C. to 1979 when the school had moved to its Yuma Street location. After happily turning over the burden of leadership, she taught English, history, Spanish, and theology for over 30 years at Ocrest and later at Montrose School in Boston. She was first, last, and always a teacher the kind of teacher you don't forget because she personifies the joy of learning and because she sets a standard of excellence that leaves a lasting impression. She inspired a number of students to go into teaching and she was a beloved mentor to many young women over the years. At age 86, Pat's sense of humor wrapped in a love for language and stories has not diminished. She came to our very first O'Donovan lecture eight years ago and got a kick out of the fact that some people had shyly asked if it was a memorial lecture. And every year she says with a chuckle, tell them I'm still alive. Each year we invite a speaker who is often a friend of someone at the school to address our students, faculty, our parents and friends and to share a meal with us. In this way, we put learning in the context of friendship so characteristic of our school culture. Our previous speakers include Peter Kalkovich, professor at St. John's College in Annapolis, who delivered a scholarly paper on Dante's Paradiso. Our own master teacher of foreign languages then, Paula Randan Burgos, who spoke on Cicero. Dr. Glenn Arbery, president of Wyoming Catholic College, who addressed friendship in one of C.S. Lewis's novels. Dr. Arthur Brooks, professor of the practice of public leadership at the Harvard Kennedy School, who spoke on character lessons in the lives of several classical composers. And Megan Gurdon, Wall Street Journal critic, children's book critic, who spoke on the power of reading aloud to children. Continuing our tradition, it is now my pleasure to introduce the sixth O'Donovan Humanities Lecturer, Professor Evelyn Witz. She is Professor Emerita of French Literature, Thought, and Culture at NYU. She received her PhD in French from Yale University. 
Professor Witz is a notable foreign language educator and the author of many articles and books, including Medieval Narrative and Mo Modern Narratology, and A Continual Feast, a scholarly cookbook centered around the observance of the liturgical year. She has received numerous awards, including the National Endowment for the Humanities and French government grants, the New York University Golden Dozen Awards for Excellence in Teaching. Professor Witz is already very familiar with Ocrest. We were delighted that she accepted our invitation to present a class on the literary genre of the ballad to our juniors last February. She returned this fall to share with our moral theology students the impact of a class on abortion that she designed at NYU. And now it's my pleasure to turn the podium over to Professor Evelyn Witz, who will introduce us all to beauty, piety, and fun in medieval literature. Professor Witz. So I'd like to talk with you tonight about seven works that I think exemplify my topic, beauty, piety, and fun in medieval literature. I'm leaving out some works that you probably know, like Dante, not so very fun, and Chaucer, not so very pious. <clears throat> in any case, I'm going to talk about some works from the 11th to the 15th century. Um, they're all readily available in translation. They're all beautiful, pious, and delightful, each in its own way. But I have to admit that my definition of fun is a little latitudinarian. Let me warn you now. <clears throat> I have a list of uh, the texts that I'm going to use in case you want to have it. So in the first two cases, I'm going to show you be able to a little closer, closer. Can you hear me now? Okay, that better? Do I need to back up or am I all right? No? Okay. So the first couple of works, I have video clips um, uh, that I can show you. They come from a course that I taught for many years at NYU called Acting Medieval Literature. In this class, the students mostly from the Tisch amazing students from the Tisch School of the Arts. So, you know, singing and dancing, classical, experimental, all these different kinds of students uh, were in this class. I lucked out completely and I had all these amazing students. So they acted out everything we, everything we, we read. And the URL is on the handout that I gave you. So the texts that I'm gonna talk about with you are as listed by Jean, literary genre, an epic, two Arthurian romances, a miracle story about the Virgin, a chronicle, a play, and a large play cycle. And I'll take up the words, the works in historical order. The first work is one of the very first Arthurian romances titled Yvain or the Night with the Lion, Yvain ou le Chevalier au Lion in French, composed in the 1160s in France by a man named Chrétien de Troyes, of whom we know nothing except that he we have a number, several of his romances survive. The theme that I want to focus on here is the idea that even if you make some big mistake in life, that mistake or sin can often be remedied. You can make amends, you can work to make things right. This first romance tells the story of a bold, noble young knight, Yvain, who wants adventure and success, and he gets them. He also manages to marry a beautiful young widow with whom he's deeply in love, but he goes off to tournaments, sort of like men might go on a business trip today for a lengthy business trip, and he forgets to return home by the date he'd absolutely sworn he would do so. He just, it slips his mind, no excuse. Suddenly he remembers and he is horrified. He has failed to keep his word to his new wife whom he loves very much. And soon his wife makes it known to him through a messenger that she never wants to see him again. It is over between them. 
he loses his mind, literally. He rips off his clothes and wanders around naked in the forest, living like an animal. But after a while, a young woman who had known him in the past and who admired him and that he'd been, he'd been kind to her, she was grateful to him. She recognizes him and by a magical unguent, she is able to restore his sanity and heal him. The second half of the romance tells how Yvain is able to redeem himself to create a new and more truly noble identity and through a series of good deeds eventually to win back the love of his wife. Whereas in the first part, he did what he pleased and sought honor in a selfish way. In the second half, he goes about helping people, rescuing people, mostly, mostly women, from injustice and often from terrible fates, including rape. He defeats an evil giant and two sons of the devil and other notable adversaries. All this in company with a lion, a perfectly marvelous character, sort of like a Wookiee, uh, large, very expressive, but no words, uh, whom he rescued from a serpent. All of these struggles to help people he performs very explicitly with the help of God. He is trying now to make right triumph. At the end, his wife takes him back. He now has a new name. He's the knight with a lion, and they are very happy. Now, all this sounds pretty serious. Doesn't sound like a whole lot of fun, but and in, in there is indeed a serious theme going on here, how to win back your honor and your wife's love when you've screwed up. And this is also a glorification of chivalry seen as making right triumph. But the work is, in fact, not at all heavy, and it is full of fun. The lion is just one of those delicious characters. Rather than quote extensively from this work, let me show you a clip from this work. I have dozens of them on the website. These clips can speak of the charm and dramatic performability of this romance. Now, this is, this is the main page of this website, uh, which has over 200 clips of medieval narrative on it. So it's fun to, fun to explore. If you want to look for something, you just do a search. But uh, let's see if I can find things. So the scene I'm going to show you is a scene late in the romance when Yvain has to fight uh, his very best friend. Um, but they don't, he doesn't realize his fr best friend, Gawain. They don't realize that they are best friends. They're both wearing their helmets. Who can tell who's who with a helmet on, right? And they're not wearing their, you know, you know heraldry, heraldic devices. So they can't tell who's who. So they hate each other because they're adversaries, but they're best friends. So in fact, they love each other. So this is a very, I think, a very clever uh, clip done by a couple of my students from this class. So let's hope all this works. I wonder how I love so great. Can coexist with moral hate? How two things so opposite be lodged together in the same house? For it seems to me that they could not be found together in one spot, or spend a single night without a quarrel or a fight, as soon as love or hate sends the other in residence. Still, in the building there may be many a hall, and a balcony, and bedroom found throughout the place. I think that this must be the case. Love is in one of the hidden nooks. <laughs> and hates on the balcony and looks out over the road and wants to try to be seen by all passers-by. Hates in the saddle and will spur ahead of love who cannot stir. Oh, love, what has become of you? Come, see what they're about to do. Look at the armies of foes and learn the men that strike the blows. 
of the same man that we're speaking of. That love is such a sacred love. A love that is not feigned or vile, is both rare and holy. All the while, love is blind. <laughs> <laughs> and hate cannot see. For if love could see, she'd have forbidden either night to harm her friend and start to fight. So love is blind, filled with dismay, <laughs> confused, beguiled, and led astray. She has seen these men, but she has not known. She ought to claim them as her own. And even though hate did not stay by these two men should fight that day, or even hate each other, as we've stated, he fills them full of mortal hatred. Self, I mean, there are all kinds of delicious scenes, and the lion himself is, is worthy of, of, has lots of clips. As I said, this work is something of a glorification of chivalry, of chivalry is associated at its best with righting wrongs and serving God. It's not irrelevant that it was composed when and where it was. In the 12th century in the county of Champagne in France, the Counts of Champagne were in this period and from generations to come, great crusaders. One of them was indeed the King of Jerusalem. These issues, chivalry, the service of God and doing what was right were matters that they took very seriously, but while still being plenty ready to have fun. The second work I'd like to discuss with you is the Song of the Cid, or the Cantar del Mio Cid. This is a 13th century anonymous Spanish epic song. It is one of very few epics I know of that is a happy work. This is an amazingly cheerful epic. No one ever dies that we care about. In, the... in most epics, by the end, almost everybody is dead. In the German Nibelungenlied, the Song of the Nibelungs, at the end, everybody's dead. Uh, so this is really quite unusual. What I want to focus on primarily with you is first the deep piety and trust in God in this work, and also its sense of joy and generosity. It's true that it's a little easy for the Cid, our hero, the leader, that's what the Cid means, whose name is Ridiaz, to be happy. It was revealed to him by the angel Gabriel that he will be successful in all his great endeavors. He was, we are told repeatedly, born at the right hour and buen hora nado. But in all that he does, and in what he is essentially, in what he is essentially doing in the Reconquista or Reconquest of Spain from the Moors, so this is another work associated with crusading activity, he does in a very happy and generous spirit. He may be taking Spain back from the Moors, but he doesn't hate them, and he treats them well. He, in fact, they like him better than their Moorish compatriots. He hates no one, and one of his best friends in the epic is a Moor named Aben Galbon. The people he mostly has trouble with are his fellow Christians from Castile. Another beautiful theme in this work is the love between the Cid, Ruy Diaz, and his wife. He always speaks of her and of their two daughters with the greatest respect and tenderness. Before leaving home in Castile, he reached out his hands, I'm quoting here, his, hair, his heart soft as his beard, we'll come back to the beard. He picked up the two little girls and held them close to his breast, held them and loved them, weeping, he sighed from deep in his heart, oh, Doña Jimenez, my wonderful wife, I love you so much and I always have. You see that I have to leave you, oh, soul of my life, I go and you must stay behind. May it please God and his mother Mary that someday these hands will give them, that is his daughters in marriage, and let fortune favor me, adding some days to my life to serve you, oh, you, my most, my much honored wife. So beautiful 
beautiful passage, and there are many others like this. I have lots of clips of this epic on my website, but let me show you one that I happen to love that shows the manliness of the Cid and the sense of humor in this work. The Cid is such a mensch. He has a long and impressive beard that flows behind him. He has to tie it up. It's so long he has to tie it up when he goes into battle. There's a whole lot of beardiness in this work. I happen to be particularly interested because I'm now working on a book on testosterone in medieval literature. So I get a lot of, I get a big kick out of this beard. So here is, here is a, I, let's, assuming that I can find it, of course. Uh, here we go. Um, a, a clip about, about the beard um, and his beard and other people's, other men's beards done by a very, a very funny performer. Don Garcia or Don Don Garcia or Don Yezros. May I speak? Oh, greatest king in Spain, warrior seed is in old hand at cards like this. He carefully lets his beard grow Lots of fun with the beard, but lots of fun in general. This is just a, an epic that is having fun all the time, but is very tender. Uh, his relationship with his wife and his daughters uh, are his, they're, they're all, this is all very tender, but, and just full of fun. Oops, nope, stop. This is another good, no, 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 stop. 
go back there. Um, so the third work I want to discuss with you is a, a 13th century French miracle story by a poet, a monk named Gautier de Coincy, Our Lady's Tumbler, Le Tombeur de Notre Dame. Here I want to focus on two themes, humility and the love of the Virgin. This story tells of a minstrel, a tumbler, who's weary of the world and decides to leave it and to enter a monastery. But he doesn't know how to do what monks do. He's illiterate. He can't read the sacred texts. He doesn't know how to chant or pray the hours. He really doesn't know how to do anything useful in the monastery, and he's afraid they're going to th throw him out. But he really loves the Virgin and wants to please and serve her. So he goes down into a crypt where there's a statue of Mary. He strips off his outer garments, his robe, and begins to entertain the Virgin as he knows best by leaping and jumping and doing his very best and most demanding somersaults. He makes a habit of doing this, coming every day, many times at all the hours by himself to perform his art before her, exhausting himself in her service. Eventually, one of the monks sees what he's doing and is shocked. He's amazed to see this half-naked guy hopping around down in the chapel. <clears throat> so he, you know, he's clearly, you know, pretty funny and weird. So he, in his consternation, he goes to the abbot and tells him what's going on. And the two of them go down in secret to watch the tumbler and to try to figure out what their attitude about this should be. It is clearly irregular. And what they see or what they are shown is that when the tumbler falls to the ground exhausted from his exertions and covered with sweat, the virgin herself comes down and wipes his brow. Wow. So they realize, and we the readers or audience of the story realize that an illiterate and ignorant lay brother can please the Holy Mother as much or more by his complete and single-minded devotion to her than the regular monks with their prayers. It's not just the trained and the learned who can please virgin, the Virgin and God, but also the simple and uneducated. You do, you give what you have and what you can. And it's worth remembering that Gautier de Quincy himself was a monk, so it's all the more interesting. Some of you may know this story because it's been redone as the clown of God by Tommy de Paola. Uh, so it's kind of an interesting, modern, uh, slightly simplified version of it, but it goes back to the 13th century. Next, I want to talk to you about a crusade chronicle, Cum Saint's Life, by Jean de Joinville, the history of St. Louis, aka Chronicle of the Crusade. This work, which appeared early in the 14th century, is the first person account by a knight and friend of King Louis IX of France, and he accompanied the, he accompanied the king on crusade. This story is full of wonderful details, both about crusading and about the late king himself, who was soon to be canonized. For example, at one point, the French knights have been captured by the Saracens, who are carrying huge axes, and the knights think they're going to be killed. Joinville says, I crossed myself, and as I knelt at the foot of one of the Saracens who was holding a Danish axe, I said to myself, thus St. Agnes died, which I think is a great, somehow I love his saying, thus St. Agnes died. <clears throat> Guy d'Ibelin, Guy of Ibelin, the constable of Cyprus, knelt down beside me and confessed himself to me. It was, I, let me parenthetically, let me say, it was common for knights who were about to die, if a priest was absent, to make their confession to other knights who might be there, or even on the battlefield, to take communion on blades of grass. So very interesting devotional practices. So I absolve him, I absolve you, I said to him, with such power as God has granted me, 
However, when I rose to my feet, I could not remember a word of what he told me, which I think is such a great detail about, about confession, even this kind of confession. At another point, Joinville is very sick and he expects to die. Men are dying all around him. He can hear the constant chants for the dead going on, liberame domine. He says, every time this happened, I burst into tears and I gave thanks to God as I addressed him thus. Lord, I adore and praise you for this suffering thou hast sent me, for I have given way to too much pride as I lay down to sleep or rose from my bed in the morning, and I pray thee, Lord, to deliver me from this sickness. Great quote, I think. He tells all kinds of great anecdotes, such as this one. He's with a Dominican brother named Eve. Brother Eve caught sight of an old woman going across the street with a bowl full of flaming coals in her right hand and a flask filled with water in her left. What are you going to do with those, he asked her. The old woman answered that with a fire, she tended to burn up paradise and destroy it utterly. And with the water, she was going to quench the fires of hell so that it would be gone forever. Why do you want to do this? Asked Brother Ives. Because, she said, I don't want anyone ever to do good in the hope of gaining paradise or from fear of hell, but solely for the love of God who deserves so much for us from us and who will do for us all the good he can. Some amazing anecdotes. At one point, while Joinville is in a Sarazen prison and is eating a meal, a Frenchman comes to see him and rebukes him because he's eating meat on a Friday. Joinville is aghast. He lost all track of time in captivity. The papal legate later reassured him that he had not been committing a sin by eating meat on a Friday when he didn't know it was a Friday, but henceforth he took only bread and water on Wednesdays and Fridays and Lent for the rest of his life. Joanne also provides in this work, which is to a substantial, to, which is to a substantial degree about King Louis, who was about to become Saint Louis, both many words of admiration for his wisdom and piety, but also, I mean, he was so he was a great king, a loving father and husband. But Joinville also recognized Louis' human weaknesses, which is interesting. Again, is I mean, Louis is about to be canonized, but and Joinville is writing how how great he was, but he was a loving father and husband, but he was too much under the thumb of his mother, the redoubtable Queen Blanche of Castile. And Joinville sometimes speaks very frankly to the king. On one occasion, Louis was trying to make a decision and was listening to various, to different arguments, often presented by interested parties. A powerful man who was giving the king advice gave him two valuable horses. The next day, the king listened to this very man very attentively. Joinville afterwards asked the king, and this is pretty nervy, you have to say, did you give that man a more favorable hearing because of the two horses he gave you yesterday? And he says, Louis thought a long time and then said, to tell you the truth, I did. And Joinville then advised the king against all kinds of gifts, which are essentially bribes. People who accept a present listen more willingly to those uh, who have given him the present. This prose chronicle is not literarily beautiful, but it's full. I I, it seems to have been dictated by Joinville late in his life to a clerk. That is, it's not at all clear that. Well, we'll come back. I'll come back at the end of the issue of reading and writing in the Middle Ages. But it was. It seems to have been dictated to a scribe of some kind. But it's full, as you can see, of interesting anecdotes and a sense of humor. It's a very deeply Catholic book about heroism and wisdom and prudence and trust in God. It's well worth the reading today, and it's readily available in translation. Let me turn now to another Arthurian romance, the anonymous Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, which I know they read here at Oakcrest. Uh, I take this 
beautiful and fun 14th century romance to represent the final flowering of medieval chivalry with its high Christian ideals. As in many medieval works, and indeed like C.S. Lewis, we have here a rather relaxed coexistence between the worlds of Christian, the world of Christianity and the realms of magic and enchantment. The romance begins at Christmas in King Arthur's court, a gigantic knight, green in color, all dressed in green on a huge green horse, suddenly arrives in the court. He aggressively proposes a game, an exchange of blows. Someone can try to cut off his head, and then he gets to do the same thing back. In order that the king be not dishonored by a lack of response to this challenge, Sir Gawain offers to participate in this exchange of blows. So he takes the great axe and he cuts off the green knight's head. Cool, right? No problem. Off it comes and it rolls around on the floor. But then the headless knight picks up his head off the floor, points it in Gawain's direction and says, okay, next year it'll be your time, your turn. And he tells Gawain to meet him in a year at some the mysterious place called the Green Chapel. So the year rolls around and shortly before the following Christmas, Sir Gawain sets off with the court assuming that they will never see him again. He's gone to find the Green Knight and to keep his word and to die. And they all expect he's gonna die, he expects to die. Before he goes, the poet tells us in detail what a great and wonderful and devout knight he is. He wear, in particular, he wears a shield painted with the pentangle, which was, we are told, a symbol that King Solomon had established. It's a five-pointed star, also called the endless knot. Gawain was, the poet said, devoid of vice, virtuous, loyal, and kind. First, he was deemed flawless in his five senses. We have, you know, V, 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 first flawless, sent fives. This work is composed in his, what, what is called the alliterative style. So in each line, uh, various words repeat the same, start with the same consonant. And the translator of this has tr tried to kind of keep to this alliterative style. So first, flawless five, you know, devoid of vice, virtuous, so forth. So he's flawless in his five senses. His five fingers were never at fault. His faith was founded in the five wounds Christ received on the cross. In battle, if he struggled, uh, he what pulled him through was the fortitude he found in the five joys which Mary had conceived in her son, our Savior. Uh, the fifth set of the five is includes friendship and fraternity with fellow men and purity and politeness that impressed at all times and so forth. So this is a great and matchless Christian knight. Now, rather than to try to summarize the rest of this story for you and the story of how he manages to survive and spoil the surprise for those who haven't read it and might want to, let me just focus on the fact that Gawain falls in a, in a minor way. This perfect knight does make a mistake. He discovered to his shame that he had loved life too much and had not trusted in God enough. He repents and then he takes this message of shame and repentance, his message of shame and repentance, back to Arthur's court, where nonetheless he is honored and welcomed with open arms, but even the best of knight in the world is not perfect. There are lots of clips of this uh, on my website, but I won't, I won't go there tonight. So next, number six, I wanna to talk to you about the great play and the great English play, Every Man. This is a beautiful and moving play that dates from the 15th century. So this anonymous allegorical play, they were called morality plays, tells about a man called Every Man. He's you and me, he's everybody. He's all of us. 
He's going along happily, if somewhat sinfully, about his business in life, bopping along cheerfully. But God up in heaven sends death down to every man. And death is to tell every man that he must make a pilgrimage and he must bring his account books with him. He's got to make, he's got to give an account of his life. So death appears to every man saying, every man stand still. Whither art thou going thus gaily? Hast thou thy master, thy maker forgot? He says, God is thinking about you. So every man asks, what desireth God of me? Death tells them he must go and make a reckoning to God. Every man says he needs longer leisure, a little more time. But death says, no, no longer leisure. Every man says, but full unready am I. He says, who are you? He says, I am death who fears no man and is God's commandment that all to me should be obedient. So every man answers, oh, death, thou comest when I had thee least in mind. He tries to bribe death to give him some extra time. Won't work. Come hence and not tarry. Every man then asks us, if this pilgrimage, if I this pilgrimage take, shall I come again shortly? Death says, no, you're not coming back. And death says, he will not, he will not spare him until tomorrow. This is the day. Then every man says he wants to have a company and not go alone. This is fine. You can find somebody to keep your company great. And that is the great theme here. When you go on this pilgrimage, who's going to keep your company? Who will go with you? Now, this doesn't sound like much fun, I grant you. But in the theme, it is clearly a dark theme. But the way in which it's handled is often very funny. And there's a dark humor, a dark humor, to be sure. But it's, it is often very funny. So I will hope you will agree with me. So every man goes to his good friends. They're called fellowship. Fellowship says, you're looking down and depressed, friend. I'll do anything for you. I will never forsake you. Every man's so happy. Here is his friend in need. Every man explains that he has to make a hard and dangerous journey and give a straight account before the high judge. Keep me company, he says. Fellowship says, well, let's talk. So when we be coming back? Every man says, well, not till the day of doom. He said, oh, well, that's different. He said, if you will eat and drink and make good cheer and bear lusty company with women, I'll do that or even commit murder for you, but not this. So, and he says, wonderful, this platitudinous answer, farewell, parting is morning. And off he goes, right? So next, every man approaches his kindred and cousin, his beloved family members. They love him so much. But when every man asks them to go, his cousin says, I have a cramp in my toe. Kindred says his girlfriend can go with every man. She loves to have fun, but he's not going. So next, every man goes to his wealth called Goods and asks them to come. But Goods says, I lie here in corners, locked in chests. I can't stir. When every man explains what he wants, Goods replies, I follow no man on such voyages. And he points out that the love of goods would even be bad for every man in his reckoning with God. Every man says, alas, I have loved thee, and I've had great pleasure and treasure. But goods replies, that is to your damnation, for my love, that is love of me, is contrary to life everlasting. And goods adds, you thought I was yours? Every man replies, I had thought so. So every man is alone. To whom shall I make my moan? For to go with me to go, who to go with me on that heavy journey? He goes to good deeds, but his good deeds are lying cold in the ground, bound by his sins. 
good deeds tells him, I can't move, I, I can't stir. He next calls on knowledge, and knowledge says, I will go with thee and be thy guide. Many of us will, you know, the every man series of books, I will, every man will be thy guide. So knowledge encourages mankind, every man, to go to confession, which he does. He weeps for very sweetness of love and puts on a garment of sorrow, that is contrition. Every man says, now blessed be Jesu, Mary's son, for now I have on true contrition. And let us now go without tarrying, good deeds, have we clear our reckoning and good deeds have revived and are reinvigorated. Knowledge encourages every man to receive the final sacraments, which he does and feels blessed. Other characters also appear who bear him company partway as every man goes toward death. Beauty, strength, discretion, and five wits. But in the end, they all abandon him as well. Ultimately, you cannot, you cannot count on your beauty or your strength or anything else, any gift that you might have to keep you company. Only good deeds and God's mercy and Holy Mary remain with every man to the end as he sinks into his grave. And we are told by knowledge that the angels in heaven, as he dies, he says, into thy hands, Lord, my soul I commend, receive it, Lord, that it not be lost. We're told that angels are now singing in heaven where every man's soul is being received. So it, after this dark, dark, dark play, we end, we, we end with joy. This play is thus full of dark and it, it's dark and full of Christian wisdom. Um, ironic humor is when, you know, I have a cramp in my toe, I can't go. Um, the great theme is of course, preparation for death, how to live right and not be fooled by the world and its pleasures and its promises how to prepare, who will go with you, you know, is the question. Now, this play certainly expresses the late medieval preoccupation with death, a preoccupation that really did not exist so much in the earlier medieval period, the 11th through the 13th centuries. It began in large part with the plagues that swept over Europe beginning in the 14th century. The Great Plague of 1349, the Black Death, was the first in a terrible series of plagues that reduced the European population by roughly a third. It's not surprising that an obsession with death arose in this period. Other catastrophes, such as the long, apparently endless war called the Hundred Years War, only added to the sense of darkness and oppression. So we see in every man, we can see in every man, one of the great Catholic expressions of all this concern, death, but also hope and finally joy. So my last text is the English, take, finally take up the English mystery plays and on a, something far less dark uh, than, uh, than every man. These are the so-called cycle or mystery plays in England. There arose at the end of the period, great cycles or groups of religious plays, primarily based on the Bible. These plays were put on in the cities of England, similar plays, some of them in cycles, also existed in France, Germany, Spain, and elsewhere. English cycles from York, Chester, and other cities survive. The English plays were great pageants played typically on large wagons like today's float wagons drawn through the town. The people would remain stationary, they stay put and watch the fairly short dramas unfold and unroll before them. Dramas often with elaborate special effects as the play wagons went through the town. The cycles were amazing in their conceptual reach, huge really. From Chester, 25 plays survive. From a place called Townley, 32 plays. From York, almost 50 plays survive. 
Some cycles like York and Townley go from creation and sometimes the fall of Lucifer all the way to the last judgment. Plays represented many scenes from both the Old and the New Testaments with many scenes from the Old Testament generally understood as prefiguring the New Testament. The plays are thus based on, on passages from the Bible amplified through dialogue and dramatic action and sometimes enriched with biblical commentary. There are many marvelous scenes. Let me just focus briefly on scenes from a short play, The Woman Taken in Adultery, from a cycle of what is today called the end town cycle for reasons which I spare you. Jesus is in the temple at the start of the play and his first words are nolo mortem peccatoris, I do not want the death of a sinner. And sometimes Latin is mixed in with the, the English in these plays. Then he develops the theme of grace and forgiveness saying, if thou ask mercy, I will never say nay. Next, we see the scribes and Pharisees saying how Jesus is going to ruin and break their law and make it lame. We send, see men breaking into the woman's house, out of which runs a young man pulling up his pants and saying that they will never catch me. I'm full glad I am gone and God's curse be on all of you. So not a, a rather nasty specimen, clearly. The men then break in and drag the woman out, insulting her and calling her a sloven and a slut. She begs for grace. She says she knows that they will kill her, but begs to be killed privately to avoid the shame. The men threaten her cruelly with public stoning. They're going to, and then they take her to Jesus. He is, of course, we know, writing on the ground, as in the scriptures. The scribes accuse her and speak of binding her to a stake and with great stones bursting out her brains. Jesus goes writing on the ground. The woman says, Holy prophet, be merciable upon me, wretch. Take no vengeance for my sins, abominable in heart. I have great repentance. I am full, worthy to have mischance, both bodily death and worldly shame, but gracious prophet of succorance that is help, this time pray you for God's name. The scribes and Pharisees continue to speak violently to and about the woman and to pressure Jesus, who keeps on writing. And then he says, look, which of you has never sin wrought, but is of life cleaner than she? cast at her stones and spare her not, clean out of sin, if that ye be. All of this comes, of course, as a dramatic amplification of the text in John's gospel. But then as each of the accusers goes away, each of them says out loud that what Jesus is writing on the ground is their sins. That is, he is writing the sins of the accusers. The Pharisee bones, alas, alas, I am ashamed. I am afeard that I shall die. All my sins, even properly named, yon prophet did write, before mine eye. The two others accusers say the same thing. The idea that what Jesus was writing on was the sins of the women's accusers is of course not in the Bible, but is found in biblical commentaries. The woman that expresses again her sorrow for her sin and promises to change. Jesus speaks again of his ever-present mercy. When man is, when man is contrite and has, has one grace, God will not keep old wrath in mind, but better love to him, to them he has, very contrite when he them find. And the play ends with a final prayer for mercy and amen. Now each play and each cycle was under the care of a particular guild and many guilds were involved in the production of these ambitious plays. The list of guilds involves goes from A to Z or at least from A to W. Thus for a, the armorers, the bakers, the barbers, the butchers, the cooks, the drapers and dyers, the fishers and fishmongers and the fletchers or armor arrow makers, the glazers, glass workers, glove makers, goldsmiths, hatsmiths, I mean, I could keep going, but you get the idea, uh, and up to the wax channelers and weavers and wheelwrights and wine merchants. 
This was truly an amazing endeavor requiring the support and cooperation of an extraordinary array of collaborators. Now, this is not the aristocracy. These are the urban, urban guilds and workers of late medieval England, and they take their crafts seriously, piously. And you have to say these plays must have been tremendous fun to put on. Sometimes the plays were sponsored by a guild that had some relevance to the particular play. And Chester, the cooks were in charge of the harrowing of hell, and their big cooking pots were used to make a loud racket in hell. In Chester, the iron makers sponsored the crucifixion. In York, it was the pinners, both guilds that make sharp pointy things, nails and pins. In each case, the guild was understood to be, ironically, we might think today, but understood to be honored by their association with that play and to be involved in that part of the Bible story. Most of the plays were, it seems, written by professional poets, mostly members of the clergy, probably. Some of the performers were also professional actors, but also ordinary laymen and laywomen acted in the plays. For both the actors and the audiences, these plays, with costumes, as I said, and special effects, made the Bible and the messages of Christianity come to life for Christians in a very new way. It's a little like the, the, the passion, the, the modern films, that is the passion of Christ, that is making these things visible to the, to the faithful. Now, that's the end of my list. Uh, I have, a, of course, a B list, but we can talk about that maybe. We've seen many kinds of beauty and delight, and even the darkest works, I think, provided their own kind of fun, usually through humor and irony. We've seen piety take the form of courage and other virtues of preparedness for death, of trust in God, of the power of the sacraments, of an awareness of the majesty of the divine plan, of the love of God, the Virgin, and many more things I could, I could keep going. Um, let me just say one final thing about medieval literature in general, I'm, you know, sort of beauty, piety, and delight. Most works that, that survive, most literary works that survive from the Middle Ages survive, of course, in manuscript form. Now, if they weren't written down, they didn't survive, right? Um, for, things to be, for things to be written down, all, almost actually intrinsically required that somebody think it was really worth writing down. You're paying for the, the work of a scribe. Um, scribes cost money. They were writing on the, the skins of animals. Uh, they were using inks that had to be made, you know, using quill and all kinds of, this was a labor that was expensive. Um, and the number of people, I mean, most, some people knew how to read, not that many people knew how to read, of course, but even fewer people knew how to write. Writing was a whole, we're used to everybody being able to read and write. So even if you could read, that didn't mean you could write. So things, having things written down required, somebody's thinking this is worth paying for. Um, and it's also worth remembering that most of these works, not absolutely everything, uh, not, not the Chronicles, Joinville's uh, Chronicle, obviously, but most of these things were composed poetically. Most of them were written in some kind of verse form, either a, a song form or uh, line, rhymed couplets. So these things, all these things, somebody, somebody thought it was worthwhile to put this together as a work, as a work of beauty. Now, so a lot of, there's a, there's a kind of assumption of merit to most works that made their way into, into writing. Of course, printing doesn't appear till around the end of the 15th century, so it's irrelevant to the, most of the Middle Ages.